We've been in a series for the last couple of weeks called Practice Hospitality. And we named that series for the verse in Romans that tells us to do exactly that. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about having a posture of openness toward those around us, whoever they may be, whether they're friends or they're strangers, a posture of openness. We've talked about how important it is to see people for who they really are and to be able to communicate to them worth and belonging and value. Don't we love it when we are the recipient of that kind of hospitality? We've talked about how our tendency to judge others can keep us from seeing as God sees and how much better life is when we put on those spiritual lenses through which we see the world. We've talked about practicing hospitality by welcoming God into our own internal experiences, especially of our pain, because we realize that if we don't have a life that is deeply rooted in the love and the acceptance of our Heavenly Father, then we're not going to have very much to offer to those around us, at least not in any authentic kind of a way. And last week we talked about how good listening is vital as we receive others as the honored guests that they are in our lives. So it's a lot. We've covered a lot over the last few weeks and we'll wind down here in just a little bit, but there's a, there's a couple more angles that we want to kind of examine this topic from before we move on. And I think that we would be quite remiss if this series didn't have this particular topic that we're going to look at today at some somewhere in it. And that is the culture of the New Testament church. The culture of the New Testament church. Now, like so many topics, I feel like I say this at least every other week. This is broad, there's so much that's here. I don't possibly, I can't possibly cover everything that I would want to cover in the short amount of time that we have together on a Sunday morning. I I have to be brief because I I don't want the Baptist to beat you guys to Los Arcos. So maybe one day we'll do a series on Acts and maybe we can get down into a little bit more of the, uh, really dig into the details. But, you know, for today, I'm just going to tease out a couple of things about the culture of the New Testament church that I think are particularly relevant to our discussion of hospitality. Now, when I say the New Testament church, I mean that the church that's described in the book of Acts, uh, the church that we see, we can kind of get glimpses of what they have going on through the letters that are in the New Testament. And it's often held up as kind of this shining example for what spiritual community should look like. I think in a lot of ways, we do with these kind of passages the same thing we do with a lot of scripture. And that is that we, we tend to sanitize it a little, maybe romanticize it a little bit. We can forget that these are real people, just like you and me, real people. People with faults and flaws and hang-ups and biases, just like us. People who were just trying the best they could to follow Jesus in their own culture and their own context, just like us. So as we dive into the text here in just a moment, I'm, I'm asking you this morning to just be conscious of our tendency to do that and try and set aside 
that tendency to idealize the members of the early church. Remember that our scripture narratives, they can't possibly contain every single detail. And we can glean a lot of wisdom from the details that are included. But we don't do ourselves any favors when we come to scripture and we view the characters as we might view them as they are venerated in stained glass windows rather than as flesh and blood human beings that are not unlike ourselves. Fair enough? So let's start with a passage from Acts that first describes the culture of the church. And that's in Acts chapter 4. You know, Jesus has died, Pentecost has happened, the early church has formed. And and this is really the first passage that we see describing what that culture looks like. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Can we just stop for a minute? And just appreciate together how wonderful that sounds. All in one heart and mind. Everybody, one heart and mind. No needy people. Sounds magical. Magical. Continuing in verse 34. From time to time... Those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now that can start to sound a little less magical, can't it? We long for the benefits of community, but we can never forget that true community requires sacrifice. It costs us something, doesn't it, to live that way, one heart and mind, with no one in need. It costs us something. And that was a cost that the early church was quite willing to pay in pursuit of this upside-down life that Jesus had invited them into. We remember what he said in John 13, 35, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen with me to what the expositor's Bible commentary has to say about this passage. In this section, verse 32 speaks of a customary practice in the early church of believers retaining their possessions, retaining their possessions, hold that in your brain, possessions and property, and sharing them among the believers. Verses 34 and 35 speak of an extraordinary response to special needs by some selling their property and possessions and distributing them to the needy. In other words, Luke here, Luke is the author of Acts, right? That's not a typo. Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. Luke here emphasizes that both continuous and extraordinary acts of Christian social concern were occurring in the early church. And he ties these acts into the apostolic proclamation 
of the resurrection. That's again from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Continuous and extraordinary acts of social concern. What a phrase. I love that phrase. I love that way of describing one aspect of hospitality. Now, listen carefully for a second, because I think here is where some of us can start to get a little nervous, okay? This is not a manifesto for communal living, right? Now, I, I don't, there's nothing wrong with communal living if that's your, your preference, but this is not, you know, setting up the expectation that if you are a follower of Jesus, this is how you must live. You're not allowed to have anything of your own, and you have to just you know, pool all your resources. That's not what this is saying. The commentary specifically says that people retained their own possessions. And it says that occasionally people who did own property that they could sell voluntarily decided to do so in order to live generously toward the community as a whole. So that's a very different picture than, than something that's kind of coerced or expected or an obligation. But it was something that they were willing to do. But I do just want to pause there and I want us to notice if there's resistance that's rising up inside of us. Just notice that. Let's not rush past that. Discomfort. Does that create a little bit of discomfort? Maybe some fear or anger. Those responses and those emotions to passages like this, concepts like this, really anything in our life, we, we just rush past those things a lot of times. But they're, they're clues to what's happening inside of us internally, something deep in our spirit, something that God might want to work through with you. I myself have struggled with this passage. I, I've heard it used in manipulative ways and I have struggled. I've struggled with the idea of sacrificing my resources, my comfort, my time, my space. That is a huge deal for me. I am I am one of the most introverted people that you will ever meet. And and living the kind of life I do saying yes to Jesus and all of the things that he invites me into, it costs me a lot. My energy And I need my space. I need my sanctuary. And so I struggle with the idea that I would would be a selfish person if I weren't willing to just give that up. I've struggled with this passage. But what I have learned for myself over the years of wrestling with God and and bringing this to him and processing this this with him is that... um, Contrary to what sometimes I think people who are trying to be manipulative would try to lead me to the conclusion of, I, I don't have a problem with being selfish or, or not wanting to be generous with my life and my time and my resources. And I, I feel like those people that are close to me would, would confirm that that's true. I don't have a lack of self-awareness there. Gen- not wanting to be generous is not my problem, but really what my problem is is that I am afraid afraid of the relational conflict that is created by the need for boundary negotiation when we're talking about sharing our resources and our space and our time and everything sharing life life with other humans requires some boundary negotiation and that's what makes me uncomfortable i don't like conflict i want you to like me 
But boundary negotiation is necessary if we're going to do life with other humans. And that brings me to my next point. True community requires sacrifice. It also requires honesty. Honesty. Remember how we talked about the fact that the early church was made up of regular, flawed human beings? Well, we're going to keep going in that passage in Acts that sets up this kind of idyllic picture of how things looked. And we'll get some insight there. So later in chapter 4, verse 36, it says this. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. The apostles had given him this nickname, the son of encouragement. Barnabas sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I think this is not in my notes. Here's a little freebie. I'm still not going to try to go long, but I just want to say that whole picture of laying it at the apostles' feet, I've also heard that used to say something about how the church ought to have more of a say than they ought to have in your personal finances. But I think that's just a very practical thing. If there is a community of people, this community of people, for example, you may not know everyone. Suppose you have a sum of money that you would like to be generous with. You might bring it to someone in the leadership and say, listen, I know that you are aware on a deeper level than I am of what the needs are in the community. Can you, can you help make sure that this, this money gets where it needs to go? Sometimes people do that at Christmas. They bring me, you know, a chunk of money and they say, if there's somebody that you know that this would be a blessing to, could you make sure that that gets into you know, the right hands. So it's just practical. It doesn't mean that it's up to church leadership to tell you what you ought to do with your money. Jesus does that. That's not my job. Anyway, that's back to the story. Barnabas sold a field, gave the money to the apostles to be distributed to those that had need. Now, in chapter 5, verse 1, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. And he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I'm not going to read the whole story verbatim from the scripture. You can do that if you like. But basically, Ananias and Sapphira did what Barnabas did, but they, they lied. They lied and said they brought all of the money, and they didn't. Okay, that's the story. And then Peter, he knows what's up. I don't know if God told him or if he, you know, caught wind of it in the marketplace, or I don't know how Peter had that information, but he says, look, dude, I know you didn't bring all the money, so why are you lying like that? And Ananias, according to the story, drops dead at his feet. The implication being that he was, you know, struck down. And no sooner did they clear the body out of the room than here comes Sapphira, and they're like, hey, did you did you bring all the money? And she's like, oh oh, yeah, we brought all the money. She drops dead too. What we have here is a crazy intense contrast. Okay. A crazy intense contrast. Barnabas, who goes on to become a super important figure throughout the early church history, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And then these two who lied and they keeled over. Now I was really, really relieved as I was preparing for this message to read lots and lots of commentaries and that there is much scholarly debate as to whether this story 
can be taken completely literally or if it was embellished or exaggerated for effect, maybe even to be seen as, as akin to a folk tale or something like that. There's, there's lots of debate about that, which I, I really like that that's there because this is a weird story and it's confusing and I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it because um, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit into what it seems like God's character is sometimes. But the point is, the point is that the author of Acts included this dramatic contrast to illustrate the importance of honesty in our community life. Honesty is the point of the story. There was no reason for them to lie. There was no reason. Nobody was under any compulsion to sell their land or to give a certain amount. That was not the point. I can just imagine how this happened, though. You know, everybody was fawning over Barnabas. You are the very son of encouragement. Thank you so much for your generosity to our community. You are just, what an amazing pillar of the church you are, that you were willing to sacrifice your finances this way. And as well, when we, when we do well, we should be you know, proud that we are living as Jesus has called us to live. I'm not, no, no shade for Barnabas. But maybe Ananias and Sapphira were jealous of that. They were jealous of the attention and the prestige that their friend was getting. And maybe they couldn't really afford to give away a comparable amount of money. But they wanted the attention and they wanted the praise and so they lied. And I have heard this story time and time again used as a sledgehammer about tithing. And that's wrong. That's not the point. That's wrong. It was not, the point was not that they didn't give enough. The point is that they violated the trust of the community by lying for selfish reasons. The point is that they wanted the benefits of community even though they were unwilling to be their authentic selves. In strength or in weakness, we are to be our authentic selves. They were unwilling to sacrifice their pride, so they pretended to be something they were not. So the lesson here in this story is that we need to show up with authenticity, with honesty, if we are going to move closer to the ideal of community life. And finally, true community requires sacrifice, it requires honesty, and true community requires boundaries. Boundaries are really just an extension of honesty, I think. They're the actions that match what is true about who we are, how we feel, and what Jesus does or does not expect of us in any given situation. Boundaries at their very basic core, they mark where I end and you begin. There's differentiation there, and it's meant to be there. The early church, even the early church with its idyllic Acts 3 summary of everyone being in one heart and mind, we saw just a few verses later, And we see throughout the New Testament that they were still not without situations where honesty needed to be spoken and boundaries needed to be set. 
It's not simple. It's not easy. It's not one or the other. It's a both-and situation. So there's several spots in the New Testament that we could talk about to illustrate this concept. But this morning, we'll just touch on one from Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. The letters of Paul, most of you know, I mean, they're written as advice for churches that are going through specific situations, challenges, issues. He was like the regional overseer of all these churches, and so he would write these letters to to give them guidance about how to deal with situations. And he would visit them from time to time, but most of his communication came through these letters. So apparently... Paul and his companions had spent time in Thessalonica at some point previously, and so he's talking to them from this kind of remember when we were there sort of a vantage point. So verse 7 says to the church in Thessalonica, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we didn't have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. I just love this line. Scripture is way funnier than than we sometimes realize. I just love this line. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. So again, I don't want my whole sermon to be a broken record of I've heard this verse used wrong. But I've heard this verse used wrong too. He who does not work, neither shall he eat. We use this as a a shaming tool for people who are in legitimate situations of need, um, dealing with burdens, dealing with disabilities, dealing with illness, really needing help. And that is not the context. The context is apparently there were people who looked at this early church, this group of people who were loving and they were caring for each other, and they did not see potential family. They saw an opportunity. They saw an opportunity. And Paul says, no, that's not okay. It's not okay. When we were there with you, we contributed to the community. We shared. We worked. We did what we could. So these people who are unwilling to contribute, who not only were idle, but they used that extra time that they had while everybody else was, was you know, trying to, trying to make things work and working for them. They used the time to stir up trouble and create division and start fights and, you know, be busybodies. Those people set some boundaries, set some limits on that behavior. That's appropriate. We are called to bear each other's burdens. We absolutely are. And the vulnerable members of our community 
both, and when I say that, I mean both of both the, the people that are a part of our church and the people in society as a whole. The vulnerable members of our society and our communities absolutely need our help. This is not an excuse to turn a blind eye to the suffering of others. It is not. But at the very same time, just because we are Christians does not mean that we have to live as doormats. It does not mean that everything someone asks we have to do. It does not mean it is our responsibility to fix everything that's wrong in the world and in people's lives. I did not know this for a super long time because I was actually taught the opposite for many years. I did not know this. And I've had many periods of time in my life that were incredibly painful. And I just, the way I accepted manipulation and abuse from other people in the name of being nice, in the name of being generous, both of which things I want to be and I think Jesus asks me to be, but I was doing it wrong. Uh, one example, gosh, I could go on and on. We could have a sermon series on all of the times that Marie had poor boundaries. But just one this morning. One example, it's almost comical now. When I sit and write these, these experiences that I have sometimes, first of all, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you guys. And then it's just funny. Like, how, what in the world was I thinking? So... When Vince and I first moved to Rolla about 20 years ago, Chrissy was a baby. She's about to turn 21 next weekend, which is insane. Um, she was a baby. Vince had just gotten out of the military, and he was really struggling to find a job that paid a comparable salary as he had been getting in the military. It was a rough year. Um, we were living in a single-wide mobile home. I want you to remember, single-wide mobile home south of town. And um, eventually Vince got a gig at the Waffle House as a manager slash cook and worked atrocious hours for abominable pay. When all was said and done, that year turned out to be the lowest income that we've ever had in our 22 years of marriage. So only a couple of months into this struggle year, the, the craziest thing happened. So Vince's older sister and her husband, together they have six children who were all at home at the time. They lived about an hour and a half south of here in a tiny town that had very little work and they were kind of struggling uh, to make ends meet. And my brother-in-law got a job in Rolla, 90 miles, 90 miles, give or take, away. And when it seemed like the job was going to stick, it was going well for a couple of months, they decided they wanted to move to Rolla. And that made sense because they were burning a lot of money on gas. Between his work schedule, the distance that they had to travel, all of those kids, it was really, really slow going. It was really challenging for them looking for housing here in Rolla just because their base of operations was so far away. So Vince and I were talking one day with them about how difficult this was. And we, being the helpful and kind people that we try to be, we said, hey, next time you guys are planning a day of house hunting, you can, you can spend the night with us. 
That way you don't have to go back and forth. So we set a date. About 10 days later, they showed up at our door with all of their belongings, having given notice to their landlord and put all of their furniture in storage. We were, we were shocked. We were just dumbfounded, completely dumbfounded. This was the mother of all miscommunications. And you know what we did? You know what we did? Nothing. We didn't say a word. They stayed for four months. Four months. Eight extra humans in our single wide trailer. They did not pay us rent. They disrupted every aspect of our lives. And we said nothing to them. Nothing. We got angrier and angrier as time went on. And, but Vince and I, we just talked to each other about how frustrated we were. It was all we ever talked about when we were alone. Oh my God, do you know what your sister did today? It's awful. Our landlady got angrier and angrier. She started charging us double lot rent after the first month because we were in violation of our lease that said, you can have house guests, but only for two weeks. So we had all these conversations with our landlady. There were a million things, a million details, a million incidents that happened over the course of those few months. And I could go on and on if, if I let myself. But years later, I just realized how utterly ridiculous it was that we never told them the truth. We didn't feel like we could say anything because we thought it wouldn't be nice. We thought it was on them to decide to respect us rather than on us to insist on respect. It's crazy. It's true that Jesus told us in John 13, 35, by this everyone will know you're my disciples the way you love one another. That's true. It's true that generosity was a big deal to the early church. Exper experientially, the spiritual oneness the believers found to be a living reality through their common allegiance to Jesus must, they realized, must be expressed in caring for the physical needs of their Christian brothers and sisters. Indeed, their integrity as a community of faith depended on them doing this. This is true. It's absolutely true, but it is also true that to live these things out in reality, we have to be brave. We have to be brave enough to sacrifice, yes, but we have to be brave enough to be honest with one another. And we have to be brave enough to set limits when they are needed. So as is true of almost every aspect of living out our faith, it isn't easy. This discussion of how we can be of one mind and one heart and, and that there would be no need among us in this community. That's not easy, but it's worth it. And we would do well to continue to fight through the difficulty of this. So 
Just as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians who were coping with these inherent challenges of living out true community, I encourage you this morning. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Never tire of doing what is good. It's in the wrestling through these things with God, with each other, and with ourselves that we are changed and we become more like Jesus, both as individuals and as his church. So keep it up. It's worth it. Let me pray for us as we go.